This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Einstein, James Dean, Brooklyn's got a winning team, Davy Crockett, Peter Pan, Elvis Presley, Disneyland, Bardo, Budapest, Alabama, Alabama, Boom, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Hello again, and welcome to episode 51 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I am Tom Fordyce. Tom Fordyce. There's a birthday happening tomorrow, and it's a pretty big one. Katie, it is our first birthday. Can you believe we've made it this far? We have made it this far, and actually... The days have just flown by. Haven't they just? They have flown by. We've been here for a year, churning out very obediently (laughs) per Billy Joel's education schedule. (laughs) All of the facts and figures there are to print and crow about from rooftops of the late 20th century. And in Billy Joel years, Katie, we have made it, what, 11 years in that time from Harry Truman to today's topic? He does get a little stuck in the 1950s. Yes, it was his childhood. It was his childhood. As he he told us, Katie, that's when time was moving at its slowest for him. Yeah, it was just like sticky, chewy bubble gum. And then then by the time he gets to the 80s in the song, he's like, well, four topics, and we're done. Everybody die. Uh, So anyway, per Billy and his instructions, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Alabama. So, Tom, Alabama, the state in the U.S. Southeast that became the crucible of the civil rights movement, where the Montgomery bus boycott spearheaded by Rosa Parks happened, where some of the freedom rides happened, where the Selma to Montgomery march led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. happened. That's a lot. Are you uh, familiar? Are you au fait with any of that stuff? My last brush, Katie, with uh, some of the stories that you've touched upon there came via the children's TV programme Horrible Histories, which you may or may not be familiar with. Um, if you're listening to this and you're not aware of Horrible Histories, where have you been? It is maybe the most fun way that a child's ever been educated via the medium of television, often because they have fantastic songs which are on-the-nose parodies of songs you know, but also tell you all this stuff. So when I said to my two young boys that I was coming down to London to do a podcast with UKT and we were going to talk about Rosa Parks, they sang to me, She sat on the bus. She sat on the bus. And they knew all about it. They knew all about it. They were schooling you via the medium of song. They certainly were, Katie. And the person who will be schooling you and I today, as we find out more about this topic, could not be better placed. His name is Chris Wilson. He is the Director of Experience Design at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. He specialises in the civil rights movement. Get this, Katie. He has met actual Rosa Parks many times. Chris, welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Hello, Tom, and hello, Katie. Happy to be here. So there's so much for us to dive into, Chris, here. I wanted to start by getting an idea of what life would have been like in Alabama for its African-American population at this time. So, yeah, if you're talking about the 1950s, um, it is a completely white supremacist uh, society. And that has built up over the past 
hundred years if you're you know a black family um, living there over over generations. Following the Civil War, Alabama initially, unlike some of the other states, um, Alabama initially passes a bunch of black codes uh, that have this paternalistic argument to pass laws to kind of protect the freedmen after emancipation and uh, guard them against evil that may arise from their sudden emancipation. But it basically, uh, for their own good, it claimed, tries to develop a new form of second-class citizenship and status. And over a few more years, uh, the Republican Party that had been the party of Lincoln, the party of anti-slavery, comes into more power. And there's 10 or so years where blacks can vote. And then by the 1870s, you have more and more of those uh, of those restrictive laws coming in, laws and practices coming into place. And so by 1900, you've got a completely white supremacist uh, society. It's interesting, Chris, that uh, there's all these little workarounds and tweaks that came into the system to um, basically get everybody back to the status quo that the white people were happy with. Because it seems that uh, right after the Civil War, there were actually African-Americans who were emerging as political leaders in the states and uh you know, women's rights were expanding, and obviously this was just uh, too much for the white supremacists, and they had to get things uh, back to basics the way they were happy with it. Exactly. Uh, in 1867, there's a, con a state constitutional convention in Alabama, and there are black delegates uh, to that. They prohibit uh, racial discrimination in voting. They um, prohibit school segregation. They start doing a number of those things. But uh, both in the state and then nationally, you see that uh, chipped away at. And it is this little by little. And then by 1896, the United States Supreme Court rules in Plessy versus Ferguson that as long as things are equal, they can be separate, um, whether it's public or private or, and, and so forth. And that really lets states like Alabama kind of run wild with it. Yeah. And so basically, they're able to enshrine this systemic racism, which also includes voter suppression, uh, underfunding African-American schools, and uh, making sure that everything stays as bad as possible for the minority. And so this is all uh, a situation that continues, that's continuing, I gather, all the way up into the 50s. What's the... Um, background that leads to these bus riding protests? Because I understand that um, there was a big case that happened in the Supreme Court in uh, 1954, the Brown versus Board of Education, which said that uh, segregation was illegal. So can you uh, put us in the picture a little bit about what the forces were in society that led up to this bus boycott? Sure. So I think one of the most important things to remember about what happens in Montgomery in 1955 and 1956 is we often think of it as this 10 or so year period that just sprang out of nowhere. But the civil rights movement was really a long civil rights movement, was really a long struggle. So you have, as soon as there is segregation, even before the Civil War, there is backlash or there is activism to try to get rid of it. So in 1841, Frederick Douglass and a friend of his, James Buffum, uh, enter a train car in Lynn, Massachusetts, 
They're ordered to leave the car because it's segregated, and they refuse. And Ida B. Wells, another well-known legal activist, um, she has the same situation on a train. And so it's really a long struggle, and lots of people are involved. Even in uh, Montgomery, we have activity happening well before Rosa Parks, where people are refusing to give up their seat. There was a woman named uh, Viola White, who in 1944, it was the same situation. She went on a bus, was asked to move out of her uh, seat and refuses. She's arrested. She's also beaten. So it's a really long, so even in Montgomery, it's a really long period where people are fighting back in lots of different ways, in both legal ways and they're also with things like boycotts. Yeah, and Chris, listening to those stories, it makes me wonder why it was Rosa Parks who lit the fire and why it wasn't these earlier cases. Well, Rosa Parks, first of all, had been preparing for this her whole life. Oftentimes we think of Rosa Parks as coming into history at this one moment. You know, Rosa Parks was tired. She like had this spontaneous desire at that moment to resist against um, the segregation. But Rosa Parks, ever since she was a little kid, had been fighting back. When uh, she was six years old, um, just after World War I, there was a big backlash um, against soldiers uh, who'd come home from World War I, black soldiers, um, and had been in France, had fought for democracy, were expecting the country to reward them in some ways, and they came back to a nation that definitely didn't. And because of the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the late uh, teens and, and 20s, there's a lot of violence and and the potential for violence in the community there. And her grandfather would sit out at night with his shotgun on the front porch. And six-year-old Rosa Parks said, I want to sit out with him, and and sometimes was allowed to sit out with him because she said, I want to see Grandpa shoot a Ku Kluxer, as she called them. Rosa Parks was um, really strong in the defense of her little brother. At one point, her little brother uh, was being... Uh, attacked and menaced by a white bully. And Rosa Parks picked up a brick and chased the the kid off. Her mother said, you know, why would you do that? You're going to get killed. You're going to get lynched. And Rosa's uh, young, nine or 10-year-old Rosa's answer was, you know, I'd rather be dead than not be able to defend myself and my, and my brother. So she, as a child, um, had that feistiness. And because of what she says and her fireness and 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 how she is, she's elected secretary, which was you know a big job, um, secretary of the NAACP in Montgomery at her first meeting. So and, people and also if you can explain what the NAACP is for people who aren't familiar with the organization. So the NAACP is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and it's founded in the first decade of the 1900s. And it's really the first or the strongest civil rights um, organization um, throughout much of the 20th century for black people. Rosa Parks meets E.D. Nixon when she becomes part of the NAACP, and they decide together to take the Montgomery NAACP chapter and turn it into an activist chapter. They decide they're going to change society in Montgomery, and it's, and they're going to spark a revolution through their leadership of the NAACP. So by the time we get to December 1955, um, Rosa Parks and E.D. Nixon have 
hatched a long plan and a partnership. And this is a partnership that really changes American history. Okay, Chris, so it is a winter's day in Montgomery. It's the 1st of December, 1955. And at this point, Rosa Parks is 42 years old. She's a seamstress. And she boards the National City Lines bus. It's number 2857. It's a sort of mustard, olive, white colour scheme. Tell us what happens next. Well, on the buses in Montgomery, because of Plessy versus Ferguson, the seating had to be separate but equal. So the first four rows were the white section. The back four rows were the black section. The middle rows in in each of these buses was kind of a no man's land. So on that day, Rosa Parks boards the bus and sits in the first seat uh, she's legally allowed to sit in. It's the section immediately behind, or the seats immediately behind the white section. Uh, There are three other black people sitting with her, um, two on each side of the aisle. And then as the bus moves along, eventually another white man gets on the bus. The bus driver, James Blake, turns around and says to all four people sitting in the row that Rosa Parks is sitting in, uh, you know, to ask them to move. And none of them move initially. They are all still continuing to sit there. And he turns around again and says, y'all make it light on yourselves and let me have those seats. Uh, Now, James Blake was a particularly cruel bus driver. Bus drivers in Montgomery were deputized as police officers and had police powers. Um, So, you know, he's threatening at this point and says, you know, let me have those seats. And the three other passengers get up and walk to the back. Rosa Parks is now sitting, uh, she gives, she lets the person who is sitting next to her pass, and then she slides over to the window. And he says, why are you going to move? And she says, no. And he says, why? And she says, because I don't think I should have to. And he grumbles and pulls the bus over to the curb and then calls the police. When the police get there, they uh, ask her, if she'd been asked to move and why she hadn't moved. And she turns the question around and says, why do you push us around? And the police officer says, well, I don't know, but the law is the law and and, uh, and you have to, and you're under arrest. Um, this is no small thing yeah. you know, to, to take this on. She's putting and, herself uh, in danger. She's putting herself in danger. She's putting her family in danger. She's putting really the whole community in danger because they are now planning to do something really unprecedented because they're, they plan to not give up. You know, they want to start a boycott. They want to start legal action and they plan to take this as far as it goes. So that means stepping across a line where you know you might get killed. And also the reason, I mean, you know, bus boycott, it sounds sort of benign, like what's the big deal? But I guess it's the fact that most of the passengers who sustain these bus businesses are black. And if they boycott it, then no more business for the white bus companies. Exactly. So that's the other part of, of segregation and, and these systems. You know, it, it does something internally to black and white people and and uh, suggests inferiority and so forth. But it's also an economic, uh, it's econ- economic oppression. Um, black people can't get jobs downtown. They can't get jobs, certain jobs throughout the city of, of Alabama. Many of the women who ride the buses, and, and mostly it's women who ride the buses, 
work as domestic labor in white households. They need to get to their jobs, um, and that's how they do it. So they do realize that they have some economic power if they can uh, harness it and if they can all be brave. And again, it's not just Rosa Parks and E.D. Nixon and, and the leaders of the movement who are taking a risk. It's really everybody because they know that the violence won't necessarily stop with them. Wow. Okay, Katie, let's have a few deep breaths after those remarkable stories. Have some ads and we'll be back shortly. Hello, I'm Katie Puckrick. Haven't I seen you on Wikipedia? Because I'm there every day. I've got a new podcast called Dot Com, the documentary series about the people of the internet. And it starts with that one site we all use, Wikipedia. Yeah, sure, it's just a little website. Who are these people? But it's not. The faces behind the screen, the brains behind the words. If you'd said to me, it will all be free. This is a hidden world, and it's fascinating. A place where people can come together and talk about the things that are important to them. We've just found a way in the Wiki universe to do that. I mean, how could Wikipedia not be corrupt at this point? Search for .com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe now. How? The demands, the three demands that the protesters make, Chris, they don't go as far as full integration, do they? they? The first one is for courteous treatment of black people. The second is that seating on the buses should be done on a first come, first serve basis. And the third one is that black people should be employed as bus operators. So for a movement that has such enormous ramifications for the nation as a whole, I wouldn't say those seem tame, but they're not they're not quite, they don't go quite as far as I imagined that they would. Exactly. Yes. Initially, they don't even ask for full desegregation because they didn't think it was in the cards at all. They thought, um, let's ask for a more humane system of segregation and some economic opportunity. But soon, you know, it didn't take them long to realize and in a few meetings, the new organization that they uh, developed, the Montgomery Improvement Association, had a few meetings with city leaders and bus company leaders and realized, as Coretta Scott King said, uh, Martin Luther King's wife says, you know, we may as well go for broke because they're not going to give us anything anyway. So let's ask for full desegregation. And I, the thing that cracks me up, Chris, is that I understand that some of the, the bus companies are trying to bring actions against these activists by saying, oh, we're going to charge you with uh, denying us uh, an opportunity to make a living. And uh, this is like, you know, anti-industry action. Um, I mean, talk about cobbling together these desperate measures to put them on the wrong side of history. Yes. And they do arrest them under an old anti-boycott law in Montgomery. Uh, so Edie Nixon, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, uh, they're all arrested. In fact, that's where, if you see pictures of Rosa Parks being booked and Martin Luther King being booked during this, it really comes from that arrest. And, mm. and there aren't any pictures of Rosa Parks the day she was arrested at the first boycott. Because, of course, nobody thought this was going to be a big thing. Sure. Nobody thought that uh, we need to this – is, this is a moment when history changes because women were getting arrested all the time sure. for refusing to give up their seat on the bus. And uh, you mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This was really the first national attention for him, this whole bus boycott thing, wasn't it? 
Right. So he um, and Fred Gray, the attorney um, who's working with him, are really young. Martin Luther King is 26. He has just started as a pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Um, he is elected as head of the new organization, the Montgomery Improvement Association, partly because he is new to town and he's not well known. He has not been there long enough that the city fathers have kind of gotten their hooks into him and can control him. And of course, everyone knows after they've heard him speak once how powerful a speaker he is. But he's not very practiced in this at all. He has not, at this point, learned and understood and, and taken to heart uh, the Gandhian principles of nonviolent direct action, as we'll eventually call it. Um, he is not the Martin Luther King we know later. He starts becoming that because of Montgomery, because they realize the power that they have in, in, of, in, in themselves. A later activist, Diane Nash, who comes out of the early 1960s and the, and the sit-in movement and so forth, one of the things she always said to me was, when I took nonviolent, nonviolent direct action into my heart, what I realized was it gave me all this power because I could decide immediately I can't be segregated anymore. Segregation is over because I refuse to be segregated. You can kill me but you can't segregate me anymore. So Tom, just listening to this, it's interesting because I'm feeling scared for Rosa Parks. I'm feeling scared for Martin Luther King. You know, they, they, you know, they need those guns and I'm feeling like they must've been so vulnerable, but my God, the courage, like once they decided deep within themselves that they were gonna refuse to kowtow, that gave them the ultimate power. That's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, because the backlash was extraordinary, Katie, wasn't it? As, as Chris has said, Martin Luther King Jr.'s house is firebombed. There were five black churches that were bombed. There were some Klansmen charged for those bombings. All were acquitted. Of course. And <laughs> you like to think, don't you, sometimes we put ourselves in history, and you like to think that you would have had the courage of Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King, but then you see the circumstances they'd been brought up in, and you see the circumstances they were attempting to live through yeah. at that period. And you're right, you are astonished by their courage. Their courage is incredible. Um, I mean, the thing that I don't think I ever factored in, and, and Chris really brings us to light so clearly, is just centuries of humiliation. So not just full-on slavery, but the whole thing of death by a thousand cuts, just those little microaggressions and, and macroaggressions, like, no, you pay in the front of the bus, you have to run around to the back of the bus, um, you know, you, you, you're not even allowed your human dignity to, you know, sit down at a lunch counter and eat your dinner. I mean, all of these things, I think, just you build up a do-or-die mentality at a certain stage. Yeah, there's a particularly resonant quote, isn't there, from Rosa Parks, referencing that day, the 1st of December, 1955, when she gets on that bus. And she says, I wasn't tired physically, I was tired of giving in. Mm. And it makes me wonder, Chris, you have spent a fair amount of time with Rosa, and I'm sure you've reflected on that day with her. What sort of woman was she? Well, so I met Rosa Parks a number of times as I was growing up. Coincidentally, uh, my mother and father their personal doctor was the dean of the medical school at Wayne State University in, in Detroit. And uh, they, they, he became their doctor. Well, he was also Rosa Parks' doctor. So we often would run into her you know, on the days that he had appointments in the hospital. And uh, one of the times I remember um, going there and, and my mother's 
20 years younger than Rosa Parks or so, but also a, a little black lady, you know, who to some degree kind of uh, resembles her. And so we're walking in the hospital that day and all these kids come up to my mother and start saying, um, hi, Mrs. Parks. Oh. And uh, my mother, you know, when being mistaken for one of the most important people in American history and yeah. this um, icon of the civil rights movement, she responds, I do not look as old as Rosa Parks. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I, I come across her um, a number of times that way. And I always thought, you know, that's, that's great. But then as a, um, I'm working at Henry Ford Museum outside Detroit in Dearborn, Michigan. And I get a, uh, and I was in charge of a new black history exhibit there. And so I get a note uh, that Rosa Parks is coming uh, with a group of kids. I was just kind of a young guy working, uh, running this exhibit, was asked to give her a ride around, which was the best thing that ever happened for me because um, I pick her up in Henry Ford Museum with the Henry Ford connection, of course, has a lot of old cars um, there. Cars are a big part of it. And so I pick her up in a 1931 model, Ford Model A station wagon and, uh. and sit her in the front seat. And she, I have to kind of help her and get her feet in because there's a very small space between the seat and the, and the front of the door. And she says, you know, to me, I could never, my feet were always too big to get in these things, even when I was a little girl. <laughs> and um, so she's really funny and so forth. And we're driving around and we go see the exhibits and, and are talking. And the thing that came across to me was Rosa Parks was pissed. Right. We often have this view of Rosa Parks as um, she was tired. She was meek. She was chosen yeah. to uh, be the face of this movement because she was a 42-year-old seamstress and she was not fiery and so forth. That was not the case at all. First of all, she wasn't chosen. She pushed it herself. And second of all, in 1992, was as angry as she was when she picked up that brick and chased away the white kid in, in when she was a child, um, was as angry as she was when she was six years old and wanted to see if her grandfather was going to shoot a Ku Klux Klan member attacking their, their house. And what's amazing to me is that someone like Rosa Parks, with that much anger, um, could, could turn that anger toward nonviolence and move in that direction and change American society without picking up a gun and without attacking anyone. And what incredible discipline she had to harness that power and, uh, you know, use her rage in a laser focused way. Exactly. And rage is a good word because that is how I how I saw it and felt it from her when she talked about um, what she had seen and what she was still seeing. Well, that's what you know. I was going to ask you about that, Chris. Like, what was her perspective then when you met her? Was it the 90s that you met her? Yes. Yeah, that was. And then then later again in the in, in the 2000s. Did she was she alive when uh, President Obama was the president of the United States? No. Okay, no, so she didn't. She didn't live to see that. But what was her perspective during the times that you spoke with her and knew her? Yeah, because that first time you met her, Chris, I guess is around the time of the Rodney King acquittal. Yes. Yeah, so she was. She saw activism as still important. She did not feel that you know we had overcome. She did not feel that we were you know. I mean, she didn't see live to see Obama and people saying. 
that we were now post-racial. But she definitely didn't hmm. feel like we were anywhere near post-racial. And she felt like racism and oppression were still as powerful as they were then. We had accomplished certain things. We'd accomplished um, the end of legalized segregation. We'd accomplished the end of race-based re voting restriction, at least by law. But she saw that following the 1967 rebellion against police brutality in Detroit, that Detroit had become a completely segregated city and schools were not only segregated, but um, of lower quality and so forth. And so she you know, felt like we had just as far to go, even though we'd made some gains uh, that she was a huge part of, the fight had to continue. Tell us, Chris, what your part was in uh, nabbing Rosa Parks' bus, the famous bus where she refused to move her seat, um, How, what your role was in uh, bringing that to the Henry Ford Museum. Yeah, so in the early 2000s, I was working at Henry Ford Museum, and um, this bus came up for auction. The owner claimed that this was the bus on which uh, Rosa Parks had been arrested. So the bus, after Rosa Parks was arrested, after the bus boycott began and, and ended, that bus, like every other bus, just stayed in service um, and continued to be a Montgomery City bus until it retired and was replaced with a new General Motors bus. Uh, all of those buses, when they went out of service, were sold. This one particularly was sold to a, a man who more or less used it as a storage shed on in his property. Huh. But when he bought it from the you know person selling it, they said, oh, you know, this is that bus. This is the bus on that Rosa Parks um, was riding on. This is the bus that caused all that trouble. Huh. He didn't think much of it other than that, but he'd always told his family this was that bus that was sitting out in their backyard. Eventually, when he passed away, his children said, well, let's this bus is a part of history. Let's sell it. Also, this bus might be valuable. And so several museums started bidding on it. Um, Henry Ford Museum ended up being the one to collect it. And it, again, it had been sitting outside. Kids had shot the windows with BB guns. Oh, it was, you know, it was a rusted Hulk sitting outside. So it took hundreds of thousands of dollars to restore it to uh, what the way it appeared in uh, in 1955, it's really one of the most powerful artifacts um, I've ever seen because Henry Ford Museum did make the decision to let people get on the bus uh, and sit in oh, the seat. So you can sit on um, the bus like Rosa did. Yeah, and sit in the seat that Rosa Parks sat and sit in the space. And that power of space, being on that bus and just thinking about what it would have been like and would you have that courage, you know, it's an experience that that you can't get from reading about it, from uh, watching a movie about it. President Obama ended up sitting, visiting the museum and sitting in that seat uh. and said it was a huge, hugely powerful moment for him to sit there and be in the space that Rosa Parks and many other people, you know, once occupied and changed the nation. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing. It seems kind of almost banal that something so life-changing and paradigm-changing is happening on a bus, you know, a mode of transportation, how to get from A to B, but it's also a mode of uh, self-determination, you know, a human being saying, I'm worth enough to be allowed to sit when I'm tired. I'm worth enough to be allowed to sit and eat my breakfast. I mean, all of these just little things that add up to 
what we're entitled to as human beings. I mean, this is a very profound fight that Rosa Parks was a part of. Exactly. And that personal feeling of humiliation and a lack of value. I mean, if you imagine sitting there on the bus in that situation with where Rosa Parks with, with three other black people sitting on the row and one white man gets on and you're expected to get up because he's more important than all four of you combined. And not only is he more important than all four of you combined, like you can't even sit across from him. You can't even walk next to him. And it's society that you're a part of, ostensibly, telling you this. It's, you know, at some points it just becomes too much for people to take. They found ways to have power and didn't give up in the face of mass resistance. Chris, we often at this point in an episode, we ask about the legacy of the historical figure involved, but it almost feels like a redundant question today because the legacy of Rosa Parks is there for everyone to see. So thank you so much for taking us inside those worlds. And thank you so much for telling me and Katie so much about Rosa Parks herself. I've enjoyed the ride, Chris. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tom, it's so inspiring that actions that are taken individually seem so, I don't know, feeble, like just retaining your seat on a bus. Like, how can that make a difference? But over the years, when people do it, when people stick to their principles, it actually makes a difference. Like the idea that you can actually make a difference is incredible. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Katie. It was just an ordinary day. 1st of December, 1955. Ordinary December day. Think of the number of ordinary days we have in our lives and you could turn an ordinary day into an extraordinary day. That is throwing down the gauntlet. It is, and Billy had no choice but to include Alabama, I think. Another good call, um, an obvious call, but a good one from William of Joel. It wouldn't be Billy Joel and it wouldn't be Billy Joel growing up in the 1950s if we weren't swinging back to the Soviet Union like we're going to be doing (laughs) next week when the episode is all to do with Khrushchev, specifically Nikita Khrushchev, the man that looked like a walking potato. <laughs> oh, Nikita, you will never know. I've started my 80s pop oh, just a week back. early. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank goodness. I was worried about you because you couldn't work any Wham! references into the <laughs> Alabama episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you can't wait a week until we meet Nikita Khrushchev, then check out this other podcast. Katie, please tell me about your other podcast. Well, it is my newest podcast series because I'm cheating on We Didn't Start the Fire, but I'm a little bit promiscuous, intellectually speaking. It's called dot com colon Wikipedia, and it explores the paradox that the web's most advanced information source is made by humankind's most ancient network, People Power. And all you have to do is search for .com, and that's D-O-T-C-O-M, in your podcast app. That is, one more time, D-O-T-C-O-M. And only one more thing from us, Katie, a request humbly for you to follow us and subscribe at Spread That Fire. If you've got the perfect guest for us for a future episode, email us fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk i'm just hovering over my emails right now just waiting 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 people don't make me wait ignore that one katie it's spam
Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.